morning, everybody. I want to echo what Aaron said at the beginning of service this morning and just take a minute to offer a, a special welcome to all of our guests here this morning. I know you've got several of you here, and we are uh, very excited that you're here with us, honored by your presence, and we hope that you are encouraged by your visit with us, and I hope you'll take a, a few minutes after service to get to know us a little bit better. I hope um, I get a chance to meet you personally and get to know a little bit more about you. We're going to be continuing what's going to be a three-part series I'm calling Unshakable, and our text this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 12, so if you want to be turning over there, uh, it's not probably the best prepared series in that uh, it's been broken up. So we did part one two weeks ago. Last week we had our youth rally and our family worship. So there's a little bit of an interlude. This next Sunday I won't be here, but the following Sunday I'll do part three. So probably not fair to ask you to try to remember what in the world I talked about two weeks ago. Uh, but let me just read through the text as we get started here and remind you. And I would uh, also remind you that you can find past lessons on our Facebook page, on our website, on our YouTube channel. And if you prefer audio, we even have a podcast you can find in the podcast store. So you can follow uh, uh, along with what we're doing and refamiliarize yourself or catch up in case you miss some of our Sundays together. So in Hebrews chapter 12, and the passage that we've been uh, reading from begins in verse 18. And what the Hebrew author is trying to do is he's trying to get us to understand the conclusion of everything he's done in the book, which is to draw a contrast between where we are now, if we are in Christ, and where Israel was when they were approaching God through the terms of the old covenant that was given through Moses. And so he's drawing a contrast between two places, two mountaintops. And he reminds us, first of all, of where we are not. And where we are not is where the Israelites were when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the covenant the first time through Moses. And so he draws our attention, first of all, to that. In verse 18, he says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because it could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's where we are not. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that when the Israelites gathered to the mountain to receive the covenant from God, they saw his presence descending on the mountain, and they were so terrified that not only would they not draw near, they wouldn't even listen to him. They told Moses in Exodus chapter 20, if you speak, we'll listen to you. But we're so afraid of God that we don't want to listen to him speak. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that's not where we are. We are not in a place any longer where we are so terrified of the presence of God that we refuse to draw near and we refuse to listen. We are somewhere else entirely. We're no longer on Mount Sinai. So where are we instead? And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And as we work through this text, what the Hebrew author does is he draws to our attention several elements. He is painting a picture with words to help us picture a place in our minds. And the thing about it is that if you recognize the, the illustrations that he's using here, then you'll instantly recognize the place. And it's a place that's familiar to us, or at least I hope it is, because it's a place, not that we hope to go one day, but a place where we already find ourselves. I have a favorite place in the world. 
I've been to some beautiful places. God has blessed me to, to really travel to some amazing places in my life. I've seen some jaw-dropping things. I got into photography really hardcore for a while because when we moved to the West Coast, I just fell in love with the landscape out here, and I wanted to be able to remember it and capture it. But my favorite place still to this day is in northern Wisconsin. It's this tiny little town called Boulder Junction, and there's a series of of handmade cabins that we used to go to and rent out, and it's just, it's beautiful. I love it. My soul is happy when I'm there. And I could describe it to you. I could tell you about what it smells like to wake up in a place made entirely of cedar and pine and have the smoke from the fireplace coming into the house. I could tell you what it smells like to wake up in in early October when the leaves are falling and what those wet leaves smell like on the ground. I could describe to you what it's like to drive through a forest of pines and look and see albino white-tailed deer running through the trees like ghosts have appeared out of nowhere. I can describe to you what what it sounds like when the loons wake up on the lakes in the morning. They have the most beautiful call, I think, in all of nature. I can paint that picture for you and maybe you'd be excited about it and say, hey, I want to go there someday. But if you had been there and I told you about all that, you could close your eyes and you could picture it perfectly because you know that place. It's a place you're familiar with. And that's what the Hebrew author is doing for his audience here. He's telling us about a place we should be familiar with because it's not a place we've only seen pictures of. It's not a place we hope to visit one day. It's a place we've already been. It's a place where we currently are. It's where we are in Christ. It's not Mount Sinai. It's a different mountaintop. So this is what he says, starting in verse 22. He says, but you have come to, so this is where we are, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better words than the blood of Abel. Now that's a lot of images to unpack there. We're not going to talk about all of them, but there's a few I want to highlight for you this morning. And it starts here with this imagery of Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, because they're all tied in together. So where have we come? We've come, in short, to the dwelling place of God. And this is what he wants us to understand. You think about Zion. What is Mount Zion to begin with? Well, it's a geographical location. It's a mount in Jerusalem. But more importantly, it's the city of David. It's the place where David had conquered and established God's people. It's where the temple was built. And it's where the Ark of the Covenant rested within the temple, where God's presence was said to dwell. And so when we think about Mount Zion, what are we thinking about? Not just a location that was special because there was a fancy building there, but a location that was vitally important to the Israelites because that's where God made his home. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. And so Zion becomes synonymous with Jerusalem and with the dwelling place of God. Where have we come today as God's people? To where God lives. To the dwelling place of God, to Mount Zion itself. Then he goes on, Revelation chapter 21. In verses 2 and 3, as we are introduced to the finality of all things, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, and that new Jerusalem is described for us, he says, just John speaking, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What is the the ultimate vision of God? That he be reunited with his people like he was in the garden. And now we've got this new garden, this new Jerusalem, this new Zion, if you will, where God dwells among his people. This is the, the highlight of the new Jerusalem. That God is there and we get to be there with him. If you scroll down in chapter 21, a little bit later on, John says, as he's surveying this new Jerusalem and as he's describing it to us, there's one thing missing. And you know what it was? It was the temple. There's no temple in the new Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because God is the temple. God's presence is there in us and with us. And so all of this imagery is just trying to get us to understand where are we? We are in the presence of God. We are in his dwelling place. We are with him in his home now already. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, Don't you know that you yourselves... Now he talks about this later in chapter 6, about us individually, that individually we are temples of God, but he's talking about it collectively here, and I want you to think about this. You yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you, what does he say, together are that temple. It's not just that we have found ourselves in the presence of God, not just that we have come to the dwelling place of God, but God dwells in us. We're not just in the presence of God, God's presence is within us. So we're not at the foot of Mount Sinai, separating ourselves from the presence of God, terrified by his holiness. We are in him and he is in us. It's a different place entirely. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, Paul just says this. He says, in him the whole building is joined together. He's talking about us coming together collectively as God's people in the church. It comes together to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. So where have we come today? We've come to the dwelling place of God. And it's here within us. Then he goes on to other imagery. He talks about the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, the city of the living God. He talks about Mount Zion. But then he turns his attention to something else. He says, you've also come to Jesus. And specifically to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And I want us to think about this for just a second. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, it's kind of one of the, the hinges of the entire book of Hebrews. He, the Hebrew writer says this, But in fact, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry that Jesus has received, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Remember I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Hebrews is not a book... Please listen to me. Hebrews is not a book about how bad the law of Moses was. That's not what it is about. He takes a high view of the law. He just says the, the covenant that we have in Jesus is so much better than the covenant that they received on Sinai through Moses. We've got a new mediator. Their mediator was Moses. Ours is Jesus. The covenant he gives us is a better covenant since the covenant is established on better promises. Jesus has given us a new covenant and it's a better covenant. In chapter 9 and verse 15, the Hebrew author says this, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant. The covenant we have in Jesus 
is better. We've not only come to the dwelling place of God, we can approach Him now under the terms of a new covenant. Jesus is the author and mediator of that covenant. And that covenant is so much better. Because in that covenant, we find something they didn't in the first, which is perfect redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. Speaking of blood... Here's the third thing I want to draw your attention to. He says we've come to Jesus, the author of a, uh, of a new covenant. But then he says something really weird. He says we've also come to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now what does blood have to do with this? And specifically what does the blood of Abel have to do with anything the Hebrew author is talking about here? And this is something that I struggled with for a while until I kind of had one of those aha moments. Oh, that's what he's talking about. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, so in chapter 12, he talks about the, the blood speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, he's already riffing off of something he said a chapter earlier. In that great hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where he walks us through all those characters in the Old Testament that illustrate to us what, what faith and trust in God looks like. In referencing Abel, he says this, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended his righteousness when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still what? Speaks. Abel is still speaking to us today. And in this context in chapter 11, what is Abel saying to us today? He's saying this is what faith looks like. If you want to be pleasing to God in your offerings, this is what faith looks like. He's speaking to us even though he's dead. But in chapter 12, he's talking about the blood of Abel speaking to us. It's not his faith that he's referencing, but his blood. So what is it that his blood is saying to us today? Genesis chapter 4, and Stefan read this passage for us earlier, and if you were wondering as he read it, why in the world are we starting worship with a story about a guy killing his brother? There's a, there's a great note to start off on, right? Okay. Not advocating for murder, I'm telling you a story. This is the story that the Hebrew author is reminding us of. The Lord said, this is God's response to Cain after Cain has murdered his brother. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The blood of Abel is saying something. There is a word it is speaking to us. It was then and it still is today. It says, now you are under a curse and driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. What is the word that Abel's blood was speaking? What is it God wanted Cain to listen to? You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve are deceived and they're cast out of the garden. There's a curse associated with sin. And what was that curse? They no longer have access to the tree of life. So now, what is it that has become a reality for humanity because of that sin? It's death. They have been cursed by death. When they leave the garden, death is now a reality. But they haven't experienced it. They haven't felt the weight of what death is like in reality. No human has died yet up until this story. The blood of Abel introduces us to the full weight of sin because now humanity knows what death looks like and feels like. And this is what the blood of Abel is speaking to us. If there's a word that, it, that it's saying, it's this, death. Abel's blood speaks a word of death to us. And from Abel's blood all the way until now, from his death until now, what has humanity experienced but the crushing weight of death? It's the thing that, weighs, that, that, that hangs over all of us, the weight that, 
that burdens all of us is the reality that we face death on a daily basis. Now, we don't acknowledge that. We push it to the back of our minds until we have to confront it. But all of us are going to die. It's the curse that comes along with sin. This is when humanity had to deal with it for the first time. But he's telling us, the Hebrew author, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the word of Abel. What is the word that Jesus' blood speaks to us? By the way, in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is giving all those woes to the scribes and Pharisees, at the very end he says, I'm going to send you some sages and some prophets, and you know what you're going to do to them? You're going to persecute them, you're going to throw them in prison, and you're going to kill them. And he says, when you do that, you're just going to prove that you were just like all of your ancestors who killed all the prophets from Abel all the way to Zechariah. A timeline of martyrs in the Old Testament. And so the question is, when Jesus dies, because that's what he's referencing, you're about to kill me, and this is why, you're just like your forefathers, is Jesus' death, is the spilling of his blood just another example in a long line of martyrs? Is that all Jesus is, is a martyr? Is it just another innocent man who shed his blood? Or is there something more powerful happening through the spilling of Jesus' blood? What is the Hebrew author trying to get us to understand? Well, Chuck already read it for us this morning as we gathered around the table. When Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he gives them the bread. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And then he does what? He gives them the fruit of the vine. He gives them the cup. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's what the Hebrew author is talking about. Through Jesus' blood, he becomes the author of a new covenant. The blood of Abel speaks a word of death to us. What does the blood of Jesus say to us? If the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the, word, the blood of Abel, then what is the word? It's life. That is the word that Jesus' blood speaks to us. Abel's blood brought a heavy reminder of the weight and the cost of sin, that with sin comes death, and this is what death looks like, and this is what death feels like. But with the blood of Jesus comes a freedom from that curse and a promise of life. This is what Jesus' blood says to us. It says life is now available to you. Where in Abel, it was just a reminder of death. In Jesus, it is a powerful testimony that the power of death has been removed. Life is the word that his blood speaks to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, Paul's talking about the gospel, and he says, then the end will come. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is what a king does. You defeat all your enemies. Jesus is going to reign until he defeats all of his enemies, at which point he'll hand the kingdom over to his father. But what is the last enemy that Jesus will vanquish? The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Is death. And this is the promise we have in Jesus. So where have we come to the dwelling place of God through Jesus who authors a new and better covenant for us Through his blood, which doesn't speak a word of death to us, it speaks a word of life to us. This is where we find ourselves now. This is where we are. So how do we respond to all of that? If Israel's response to the presence of God at Sinai was fear and terror, what is our appropriate response today to realizing that we are already on the mountaintop in the presence of God through the blood of his son Jesus? How do we respond to all of that? 
So we get back to our text, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. And I think this is a reference back to really the whole Exodus story when Israel continued to disobey God. But I think specifically what happens in Exodus chapter 20 when they tell Moses, we will listen to you, but don't let God speak to us. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. So now he's talking about God's voice being such a powerful presence that it literally shakes the earth. Well, what does that have to do with anything? This is what he says. The words once more indicate removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. God's holy presence, God's words are so powerful that they shake the very foundations of the earth. And when those things are shaken, the things that are temporary do what? They crumble and they come to nothing. But those things that are built with permanency, it doesn't matter how hard you shake them, they will always be there. Where do we find ourselves? In the midst of something that can still be shaken? Or in the midst of something permanent? The things that can be shaken will be removed. Only the permanent things will remain. And this kingdom that we are receiving is one of those permanent things. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be bettered. It cannot be improved upon. We are in the midst of an unshakable kingdom. There's nothing better coming. Or as the Hebrew author puts it back in chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The law had its limitations. It was just a shadow of the more powerful, perfect things that were to come. But we're no longer under a shadow. We are basking in the full glory of what God has revealed to us through His Son. We're not still waiting for something better. We are in the better right now. Jesus is the better. And that's where we find ourselves right now. Therefore, since, this is His conclusion, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, what do we do? How do we react? Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do we do? Do we stand back as Israel did? Do we beg for somebody to listen to God on our behalf because we're so afraid of his presence in our life? Or do we worship? You know, you think about worship as a way that we approach God. Skeeter did a good job talking about it this morning. That one song that you talked about, the awkward words, I'd actually never heard that song before, so thank you for leading that. And I like it. I like those awkward words, right? I think that song expresses something. When we think about worship, we think about a worship service. Yes, everything needs to be done decently and in order. I've read that passage. I understand it. But oftentimes, we talk about worship, we talk about something that's manicured, something that's curated. Something that has a beginning and an end. And you guys are wondering when the end is coming, right? I get it. We, we want something structured and something that, that's got boundaries and, and, and something that's presented as perfectly as possible. 
But worship is something more than that. Worship has spontaneity to it. Worship is, as that song says, an explosion. Worship is what we do naturally when we reflect on where we are and who our God is. When we discover that through Jesus we can stand in the presence of God, how do you not worship? It's a natural reaction. Worship has to become the language of our heart. This is the kind of worship that the author of Hebrews is talking about. That spontaneous reaction to the holiness of God. But then he says something else, one last thing here. He says, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Well, great, now we're right back to being afraid of God. He's a consuming fire. Okay, well, there's two ways to think about fire. Something terrifying or something refining. And it's the latter of those two meanings that I think he's trying to get us to pay attention to. God is a consuming fire in what way? He burns away the things that aren't worthy of permanency. He shakes them away. He burns them away. He refines us. He's turning us into something holier than we were without him. He's conforming us to the image of his son. In Isaiah chapter 1, if you want to turn over there with me, I'll ask you to follow along. Let me just read this passage to you. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah begins by pointing out how corrupt Israel had become and what God was going to do as a result of that corruption. Yes, God was going to unleash his wrath on their enemies, but God also had judgment in store for his own people. Not that he would destroy them, but that he would refine them. So just follow along if you would. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 21. See how the faithful city, talking about Jerusalem, has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Usually you melt away the dross, the imperfections, so that silver is left, but your silver has become the imperfections. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies, but also I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as in the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. So yes, our God is a consuming fire. But the point of his fire is his wrath and his justice are poured out on us, his people. The purpose of that fire isn't to consume us and destroy us. His hope is that that fire will refine us. And it will burn away all of the impurities in our life and leave us as something more holy than we were without him. And so I've got a, a series of questions I want to ask as we come to an end this morning. What are the things in our lives? What are the things in your life that need to be burned away? By the holiness of God. 
And are you ready for that process to take place? Are you ready to be refined by the fire of the holy God that we serve? Which mountain do you want to live on right now? Are you still at the foot of Zion terrified by the presence of God? You know, a lot of times people either fall away from God or they decide they want nothing to do with him to begin with. And what they say is, I don't really like God. I don't think it's that they don't like God. I think they don't like who God exposes them to be. Are you ready to be exposed by your creator? Are you ready to be left with an understanding that you are corrupt without him? That there is none good, no, not one, as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3. Are you ready to come face to face with your own imperfections and your own failings? Because God will expose all of that and he will consume it and he will refine you. But are you ready for that? Or are you still hiding behind a mediator saying, you talk to God, I'm not ready yet. Which mountain would you rather be on? At the foot of the mountain trembling in fear or on the top of Mount Zion in the presence of God in the comfort of his son, knowing where you stand with him? refined by his holiness is God's presence terrifying to us or is it good news and here's the question I asked at the end of the lesson two weeks ago I'm going to ask it again but I'd like us to think about it in regard to ourselves did God want Israel to be afraid and stay away or to fear and draw near what did God really want from Israel on that mountain what does God want from us today and so I'm going to leave you with this and this is where the third part of our series will come from in just a couple weeks Hebrews chapter 10. Pay attention to what he says. I know this is working backwards in Hebrews, but listen to what it says. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. I thought only the high priest could go in there. Yes, but we are a nation of priests today. And we all get to enter into the presence of God. Why? What gives us the right to do that? Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, He opened for us through the curtain. That is His body. Remember what happened to the temple veil when Jesus was crucified? It was torn in two, right? A lot of things that might have represented. But that barrier between the holy presence of God and His people has been removed. And there's a new opening into the Holy of Holies, into the dwelling place of God through the blood of Jesus. He says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, since all of these things are true, what? Let us draw near to God. There's the answer to the question. What does God want from us today? It's not to stay far away. It's to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so this is what I want to ask you this morning. As you approach the holy presence of your God, as you think about the relationship that you have with your creator, not just individually but collectively, are you still terrified by the presence of God? Are you intimidated by his holiness? Are you uncomfortable acknowledging how good he is and how broken you are? Or are you confident in his presence, knowing that the blood of Jesus has washed you and that you stand sanctified in his presence and that you have confidence to enter in to the holy presence of God? Where do you find yourself this morning? And I want to give you an invitation as we come 
to a close. That if you're still standing at the bottom of the mountain, looking up at God, trembling in fear, move off that place. And come instead into the presence of God through the blood of His Son. And find some confidence in your relationship with God. Because this is what He offers you. It's not your goodness that gives you confidence. It's the blood of Christ. So take hold of the promise He gives you and stand confident in the presence of your God. If you have not yet put Christ on in baptism, why not? If you haven't yet repented of your sins, acknowledged your own shortcomings, and looked to Him for saving power and redemption, why not? What are you waiting for? We stand to serve you as a church this morning. If there's anything we can do for you, I want to encourage you. We're going to sing a song in just a minute to come forward and let us know how to do that. If you're not comfortable with that, find one of us, either myself or one of our shepherds, and let's talk, let's pray, let's study. But real quick... Churches develop cultures over time. And a lot of modern churches in America have developed a culture where nobody wants to come forward, right? Because there's a stigma attached to that process, right? You come forward only if you've done something really, really naughty or you're ready to put Christ on in baptism. Everybody else gets to sit comfortably in the pew, and it's, after all, it's just about a private relationship between you and your creator, right? No, it's about a collective relationship, and this is a blessing. A family that you can come in front of and confess if you need to confess, ask if you need to ask, whatever it is. I would like to encourage us to change the culture, that there's no longer a stigma attached to a response to a lesson at the end of a sermon. And so... If you might be that person this morning that might change the culture and be brave enough to come forward, now's your opportunity. But whatever you need, we're here to serve you, and we'd be happy to do that. Let us know how as we stand and we sing this song. Let's stand and sing. Well, we are.